Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, entitled The End of the Great War, David Simpson tells us about the key players and the major events leading up to the armistice. As the guns fell silent on the Western Front on the 11th of November 1918 and birdsong reclaimed the sky, thoughts turned to peace. But how had we got here? What sort of peace would satisfy both the vanquishers and the vanquished? What diplomatic machinations could deliver on the promise that the Great War was truly the war to end all wars? I split this talk to two presentations. Today, I will summarize the situation across the last few months of the war, focusing primarily on the political dimension, but with some military history. Then I will move on to the road to the armistice before finishing on a review of the state of the world post 11th of November, 1918. Next time, I will take you through the peace process itself. This will be followed by a review of the Treaty of Versailles, looking at its major provisions, seeing how the treaty was received in its own time before giving an historical perspective 101 years on. Just a quick word on the timeline. There are multiple trails on the road to peace and some occur simultaneously. There are therefore passages where I'll have to go forward and then back in the timeline to give context to what is occurring. This will mean I mention certain events on numerous occasions as they are key to several different pathways. I hope this does not confuse, but rather helps to place each pathway in its historical context. Also, a note on the nomenclature of the First World War. As you can see from this slide, it was fought between many nations, but for shorthand, I have used allies for the Entente powers of Great Britain, France, Russia, Japan, etc. While for Germany, Austro-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire and Bulgaria, I have used the term the central powers. So on with the talk. November 1918, 10.58am, Chaumont de Vendin Northern France. For private first class Henry Gunther, the last minute of the war was coming too quickly. For you see, PFC Gunther was one of the two million American soldiers over there, and he was in search of redemption. Demoted from the rank of sergeant for having the temerity to write a critical letter deploring miserable conditions, this American doughboy, their version of Tommy, knew he needed a battlefield commendation to see his rank restored. So, at 10.59am, in a vainglorious attempt to see his stripes returned, he set off on a solo bayonet charge towards a pair of German machine guns. As he broke cover on that damp morning, his compatriots looked on in utter disbelief. The sergeant in charge of his platoon screamed at him to stop. 
the Germans opposite, rather than open fire, instead shouted warnings and tried to wave him away, all to no avail. Gunther carried on, the blood pumping, his mouth dry, dreaming of redemption. Lifting his rifle, he began to shoot. Reluctantly, the Germans gave a shrug of despair and returned fire. Gunther died instantly. Reputedly, the last soldier to die in action on the Western Front, Gunther was but one of 11,000 casualties on that last day of the war. As an aside, the US Army posthumously restored his rank as sergeant and awarded him a divisional citation for gallantry in action and the Distinguished Service Cross, a reward more for stupidity than bravery, I fear. While Private Gunther is reputedly the last soldier to die in action on the Western Front during the Great War, he was not the last soldier to die, as any visitor to the many military cemeteries across all the conflict zones will bear witness. Many of these forlorn headstones that march silently across the world bear dates well into 1919 and beyond, as soldiers succumb to their wounds, accidents, infections or illness. But the war to end all wars had finally ended. How had it ended and who would now win the peace? There should never be any debate as to the scale of the German defeat in November 1918. The German army had been routed by the merciless application of battlefield mathematics. Superior numbers plus greater military resources plus far superior tactical flexibility equals overwhelming victory. But victory for the Allies in November 1918 seemed but a dream when in March 1918, the Germans unleashed Operation Michael. They made rapid gains measured in miles, not the usual blood-stained yards. It almost won them the war, almost. Braving the initial onslaught, the Allies had been driven back 40 miles, but they had not been broken, and the Germans had not achieved any of their strategic objectives. Slowly, the tide turned, and by dint of courage, resources, and superior tactics, the Allies had finally stabilised their front line and ground their way back to their initial positions. By August 1918, the Allies were ready to launch their own initiative. The senior Allied military commanders, Allied Supremo Ferdinand Foch and Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig, foresaw victory in late 1918 as paramount. The German army was in retreat. The naval blockade was biting by strangling Germany of supplies. The rest of the central powers were failing everywhere and rumours were circulating of domestic unrest across Germany. If victory not now, when? The politicians wanted to wait for what they thought was an easier path to peace in 1919. This non-existent path was yet another pipe dream of the Allied politicians. Peace in 1919 would have been even more hard fought than any peace in 1918, with many more deaths. The Germans would have been fanatically fighting on their own soil, defending the fatherland, and even the most war-weary German would have held fast, as many did in 1945. Also, another seven or eight months of war, leading to the real potential of significant political unrest at home. And even if the Allies had simply waited in place for the two million American troops to become trained and ready for the offensive, then it would not have saved that many lives. The British Army alone could have lost approximately 20,000 more men 
just by the natural attrition rate for an army of 3.8 million through accident and illness in that seven month period. Far better to fight in 1918 when the Germans were at their weakest with growing talk of revolution in Germany. And so fight we did in a rapid series of massive allied attacks which finally ended the First World War. Germany's final defeat can be traced back to the 8th of August, 1918. On this day, Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig initiated the four-day Battle of Amiens that marked the turning point in the war and signaled the beginning of the 100-day offensive, as it became known, that would finally sound the death knell for Germany. By the end of that day, the Allies had taken 17,000 prisoners and 330 artillery pieces. Total German losses were estimated to be 30,000 men, while the Allies had suffered just 6,500 killed, wounded and missing. General Erich Ludendorff, Deputy Chief of the German General Staff, called the 8th of August the blackest day of the German army. It was the beginning of the end. Through August, September, October and November, the Allies, spearheaded by British and Empire troops, launched attack after attack on the German lines. From Amiens to the Somme, the Allies outfought, outmaneuvered and outsmarted the German army. The Germans eventually retreated to the Hindenburg Line and beyond. On a personal level, the Battle of Saint-Quentin saw members of my family in the desperate fight for the Canal of Ricoville as part of the 137th Staffordshire Brigade. At least two great uncles are somewhere in this famous photograph. If war was still being fought in November 1918, had there been no attempts at negotiating a peace treaty before? In fact, there had been several by various parties to seek a peaceful end to the conflict. Austro-Hungary, in particular, was keen to get out of the war it had played such a hand in starting. Emperor Charles viewed the war as a disaster, but despite opening dialogue with France, was unable to even get close to a peace treaty, as he was incapable of an independent foreign policy separate to his German allies. So across 1914-1917, there was not a single initiative that even came close to ending the bloodshed. However, by the end of 1917, the destructiveness of the war and the lack of a decisive knockout blow had led to war weariness across all the combatant states. Peace without victory was a popular cry from neutral observers. In addition, many on the left in Germany thought the overthrow of the Tsarist regime in Russia in March 1917 removed the justification for the war and social democratic parties and even some centrist parties within the German parliament, the Reichstag, passed a resolution calling for a peace of understanding and reconciliation. They were to be disappointed in both the short and the long term. But if there was to be a peace, there was only one country that both sides would have accepted at the start of the war as an honest broker. So all eyes turned to the newest world power. Enter Woodrow Wilson, 28th President of the United States. It is ironic that Woodrow Wilson should have been the president to lead the US into a world war. As a young boy, he had lived through the American Civil War and had seen firsthand the devastation armed conflict can bring. When finally he led the United States into war, it was only by proclaiming the American war effort to 
crusade for democracy and a fight for a just and lasting peace. At the beginning of the war, Wilson had quickly declared neutrality, but he was no pacifist. The sinking of the Lusitania by a German U-boat in May 1915 made him realise that intervention was only a matter of time. So he redoubled his efforts to promote a peace settlement, all to no avail. Although Wilson was re-elected to the presidency in December 1916 on a ticket that included the claim that he was the man who kept America out of the war, he realised that his peace overtures had failed. Then, in January 1917, Germany initiated a policy of unrestricted submarine warfare against ships in the seas around the United Kingdom, regardless of nationality. In February, there swiftly followed the publication of the Zimmermann Telegraph that showed that the Germans were encouraging Mexico to ally themselves with the Central Powers. Wilson was convinced that Germany was now engaged in a commercial war against the US. So rather than the man who kept America out of the war, Wilson became the man who led America into the war. His speech requesting congressional approval to declare war on 2nd of April 1917 was couched in terms making it clear he was not entering the war in pursuit of national interest or territorial gains, but for purer motives. We have no selfish ends to serve. We desire no conquest, no dominion. No material compensation for the sacrifices we shall freely make. We are but the champions of the rights of mankind. We shall be satisfied when those rights have been made as secure as the faith and freedom of the nations can make them. America would march into Europe and remake it in accordance with principles of democracy and justice. Its ethical foreign policy would end war forever. Ironically, this passionate liberal then introduced compulsory military service and draconian press censorship. Wilson, while supporting the Allies, was always semi-detached. He never agreed to join policy with David Lloyd George, Prime Minister of Great Britain, or Georges Clemenceau, President of France. The US would fight its own war for its own aims. Wilson idealism, though, concealed his commitment to overthrow German militarism, which Wilson blamed for causing the war. In part, to seize back the moral high ground, after Lenin urged combatant countries to pursue a just and democratic peace, Wilson outlined in a speech to the US Congress on January the 8th, 1918, his principles for a peace negotiation to end the Great War. These principles became known as the 14 points. The first five were the overarching principles that Wilson was endeavouring to introduce to the world stage. Firstly, open and transparent covenants of peace, which would put to an end the alliance system that escalated the start of World War I. Secondly, absolute freedom of navigation of international waters. Great Britain was definitely not aligned to this, as it would reduce the efficacy of her navy. Thirdly, to introduce free trade, a rallying cry for liberals around the world, an end to protectionism. Fourthly, national disarmament to the lowest point of domestic safety. This hopefully would remove the threat of wars of aggression. And fifthly, an end to imperialism, 
local populations must be recognized and have a role in self-government, except, of course, America's own empire in the Philippines, Haiti, Hawaii, Alaska, etc. The rest of the 14 points were associated with territorial realignment and the policing of future areas of contention. For Russia, this would mean that Germany were to evacuate Russian territory and all nations were to respect Russia's own development. Belgium was to be evacuated by all powers and restored to pre-war conditions. Germany was to evacuate all French territory, including Alsace-Lorraine. Italy's borders were to be readjusted along lines of nationality and ethnicity. Austro-Hungary, autonomous development across the various states comprising the Austro-Hungarian Empire. In Eastern Europe, Romania, Serbia and Montenegro were all to be evacuated and restored to their pre-1914 conditions. In the Ottoman Empire, Turkey was to be recognised, but the balance of the Ottoman Empire was to be allowed self-determination. Poland was to be granted independence and access to the sea. And the 14th, and some would say perhaps one of the most important, would be the establishment of the League of Nations, who would police the world. The forerunner of today's United Nations, the League of Nations, I will go into much more detail on this at the next presentation. The 14 points were welcomed by the Allies, but not fully endorsed. Clemenceau exclaimed, 14, the good Lord had only 10. Lloyd George and Clemenceau were sceptical of Wilson's idealism and had their own thoughts on punishing Germany, but overall, they were generally in line with American aims. In fact, Lloyd George, in a speech a couple of days earlier, had set out British and Dominion war aims that were not that different, but whose speech had been almost erased from history. The only real difference between the two speeches were regarding freedom of the sea, payment of reparations, and vaguer promises regarding non-Turkish populations. 14 points were widely broadcast and translated into many languages and were destined to become the starting point for any discussions of a peace treaty. In fact, most of the controversy around the final Treaty of Versailles is on those terms that were added to the treaty and were not in the 14 points, specifically the War Guild Clause and reparations. But just three months after the 14 points were announced, the world saw what peace meant in the hands of Germany. The first successful peace negotiations of the war were held between Russia and the Central Powers at Brest-Litovsk in Belarus. The outcome was a brutally one-sided agreement and not the just and democratic peace envisioned by Lenin. The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was finally signed in March 1918. It ended the war between Russia and the Central Powers. It annexed 1.3 million square miles according to all of Russia's territory, 62 million people, a third of its population. Russia lost a third of its arable land, three quarters of its coal and iron resources, a third of its factories, over half of its industrial capacity and a quarter of its railroads. And it had to pay 300 million gold rubles, equivalent to about 65 billion pounds. This treaty was exploitative in the extreme and was taken as an example of the terms the Allies could expect if they were defeated. Both France and Great Britain now truly perceive themselves to be in an existential struggle 
and in part this helps to explain some of the more brutal aspects of the Treaty of Versailles. With America now committed to the war and able to bring their unrivaled manpower and resources to bear, time was no longer on the side of the Central Powers. As the Allies advanced on the Western Front, Germany also suffered the collapse of the other Central Powers, defeat for Turkey and Palestine, Bulgaria and Macedonia, and Austro-Hungary and Italy, led to the southern flank of Germany's alliance system unravelling, and with the increased attacks of the Hundred Days, Germany was no longer capable of military intervention to save its allies. Macedonia is an oft-forgotten theatre of the First World War. Allied troops from six nations, including Britain, have been in situ since October 1915, called the Gardeners of Salonika because of their inactivity. These forces would have been far better deployed on the Western Front. However, everything changed in June 1918 when the French general, Franchet Despere, that's desperate Frankie to his English allies, became the theatre commander. By mid-September, the Bulgarians were suing for peace and an armistice came into force on September the 30th, 1918. The collapse of Bulgaria left the Allies free to attack the Turkish capital in the east or Austro-Hungary to the north. Following the successful capture of Jerusalem in December 1917, progress had been slow on the Palestine front. General Allenby had slowly built up his mixed force of British, Australian, New Zealand, South African and Indian troops, alongside the Arabs led by T.E. Lawrence and Faisal bin Hussein. But by September, Allenby was ready to launch his new offensive. On the 19th, the attack went in at Megiddo, the actual Armageddon of biblical fame. And by the 20th, the Turks and Germans were on the retreat, harried by cavalry and armoured cars. Meanwhile, Lawrence and his irregulars captured Deira and crossed the Jordan. By the beginning of October, Lawrence and his Arabs entered Damascus. The Turks were now under pressure on two fronts and without more support from Germany, were facing imminent defeat and the loss of their capital, Constantinople. The young Turks, who had led the country to war in 1914, fell from power on the 14th of October. The new government swiftly sued for peace, and an armistice was signed on board HMS Agamemnon on October the 30th. On the death of Emperor Franz Joseph, his grandnephew Charles became emperor in November 1916. Militarily, the armed forces of Austro-Hungary had had little success since their invasion of Serbia in 1914, except for their victory at Caporetto in Italy in late 1917. But their all-out offensive on the Italian front in June 1918 was a nadir of their martial might. Instead of making gains, they were driven back by the combined Allied forces, British, American, French and Italian troops. Eventually, the Austro-Hungarian forces slowly were able to reform and held the line across the rest of the summer and early autumn. That is, until the Bulgarian surrender on the 30th of September left Austro-Hungary exposed to attack through the Balkans. Aside from the shortage of German support in terms of men and materiel, the other deciding factor in the fate of Austro-Hungary was the swift disintegration of its fragile unity, with different national groups declaring independence and as a result, its Slav troops becoming unreliable. Emperor Charles appealed directly to Woodrow Wilson, but his proposals were rebuffed. To stave off political collapse, 
on the 16th of October, Emperor Charles announced major constitutional reforms, but it was too little, too late. As the political situation unraveled, so too did the military, as Italy launched an offensive at Vittorio Veneto on the 24th of October. By the 29th, the war with Austro-Hungary was almost over, and an armistice was signed on November the 3rd, 1918. But even before the armistice was signed, Austro-Hungary had ceased to exist. Poles, Czechs and Slovaks and the Southern Slavs declared themselves independent. Hungary formally quit the Union and Charles renounced his role as head of state on the 11th of November 1918. Germany, having held the Allies at bay across 1916 and 1917 and shored up her central power partners with both men and supplies, 1918 was supposed to be an opportunity to win the war. From early 1917, Kaiser Wilhelm II increasingly delegated his authority to the German Army High Command of General Paul Hindenburg and his deputy, Erich Ludendorff. They established a de facto military dictatorship that controlled Germany for the rest of the war. The Eastern Front had been conquered, followed by a series of German offensive like Operation Michael on the Western Front that nearly won the war in mid-1918. This was Germany's high watermark. What followed next was an inexorable decline. As central power states were slowly knocked out of the war, the German military leadership feared that the Western Front defenses would not hold and their now vulnerable Southern flank was indefensible. As a result of the Allied offensive at Saint-Quentin on the 29th of September, the German Supreme Army Command based in Spa, Belgium, informed Kaiser Wilhelm II and the Imperial German Chancellor Count Georg von Hertling that the military situation facing Germany was hopeless. The Hindenburg line had been breached and the German army was in full retreat. General Erich Ludendorff demanded an immediate ceasefire and recommended an acceptance of the 14 points, including putting Germany on the road to a democratic process. This would later enable Ludendorff to place the responsibility for the eventual capitulation and its consequences back into the hands of the politicians. They now must lie on the bed that they have made us, he said. This is the beginning of the stab to the back myth that defeat for Germany was the result of politicians and dark forces, and not because Germany had been militarily defeated, as even by November the 11th, no Allied troops had set foot in Germany. But if the collapse of the central powers showed Germany's weakness and the Hundred Days had demonstrated her military fallibility, there was still hope for peace with honour if her rulers could hold the country together. This, though, would prove impossible. The German Supreme Command knew that the game was up and wished to avoid a humiliating total military defeat. They therefore began to seek ways to lure the Allies into a premature armistice. It was self-evidently not in the Allies' interest to end the war with Germany, still possessing an intact army, and give it time to resupply, rearm itself, and potentially restart the war. The German High Command hoped they could appeal to the liberal humanity of President Wilson. By requesting terms based on the 14 points, they hoped it would leave the German armed forces intact, the Kaiser still on his throne, and German territory free of foreign occupation. The Germans' first move was to show their democratic intentions 
by appointing as Chancellor the moderate Conservative Prince Maximilian von Baden as head of a liberal civilian government. For the first time in its history, the German government was to be representative of the majority of the Reichstag, including members of the Social Democratic Party and Zentrum, the Catholic Party. Detailed evaluations of both the political and military situation persuaded Maximilian that continued fighting was hopeless. On the 4th of October, Prince Maximilian sent a note via neutral Switzerland to President Wilson requesting an armistice and accepting the 14 points as the basis for negotiation. Wilson was initially inclined to accept the proposal and prepared a request for the Germans to merely withdraw their forces from occupied territories as a prelude to an armistice. When the utter folly of this was pointed out to Wilson by Foch and Haig, he had to stiffen his position. In this, he was helped by the sinking of the Irish ferry, RMS Leinster, on October the 10th, killing 564 people. It was sunk by German U-boat 123. Wilson now demanded an end to submarine warfare, plus real steps to the establishment of a functioning German democracy. Maximilian now had no choice but to suspend all U-boat activity and push through reforms to make Germany a constitutional monarchy. On the 23rd of October, Wilson finally made it clear that in order to obtain an armistice, Germany would have to surrender and the Kaiser would have to abdicate. Wilson now handed over the task of formulating the precise terms of the armistice to the Allied military commanders. On the Western Front, the historical resilience of the German army sprung once again to the fore, and there was no longer any prospect of an immediate military collapse. Hindenburg and Ludendorff, therefore, no longer supported the need for an armistice and expressed their outrage at the Allied terms. So on the 24th of October, Hindenburg and Ludendorff ordered the German armies to fight on to the end. The German government, aware of growing domestic political unrest, were aghast, and two days later fired Ludendorff. Hindenburg now knew the war was as good as over, and he had lost his grip on the civil authorities. Meanwhile, the German people, who had been kept in the dark about the latest news from the front, were thrown into utter confusion by the prospects of defeat. The liberalisation of Germany under Maximilian had included the release of political prisoners and the introduction of some degree of freedom of speech. Wracked by hunger and shortages, sacrifices deemed acceptable when victory seemed in their grasp, German cities now seethed with unrest. The left-wing parties in the Reichstag advocated the overthrow of the Kaiser, while the far-left Spartacus League, led by the newly released Karl Liebknecht, and Rosa Luxemburg agitated for a revolutionary upheaval to establish a socialist state. On October the 28th, the German Admiralty ordered the high seas fleet at Wilhelmshaven to put to sea for a last encounter with the Royal Navy's Grand Fleet. This was a serious misjudgment. The German Admiralty had totally misread the mood of the ratings. Blockaded in port for most of the war, poorly fed, and alienated by the arrogant officer class, the German sailors were in no mood for a death or glory sortie. They refused to sail. The mutiny quickly spread to the port city of Kiel, which was taken over by revolutionary sailors' councils modeled on the Russian Soviets. Through the first week of November 1918, the uprising spread, 
workers, soldiers and sailors' councils to control of several cities across Germany. In Munich, Kurt Eisner of the Independent Socialist Party declared Bavaria a republic. German-based army units stripped their officers of insignia and arms. But on the Western Front, discipline held and the German troops fought on. An armistice was still required. So, on the night of the 7th of October, the German delegation travelled through Allied lines for a face-to-face -face negotiation. Before agreement was reached, however, the German Empire ceased to exist. On the 9th of November, as upheaval reached Berlin streets, where soldiers and workers fought on both sides, Prince Maximilian handed the chancellorship to the moderate social democrat Friedrich Ebert. It was announced from a balcony of the Reichstag that the old rotten monarchy has collapsed. Long live the German Republic. Kaiser Wilhelm II was at the German military headquarters at Spa in Belgium when he was informed by his own high command that the German army would not fight to keep him on the throne. He fled with his personal entourage across the Dutch border and went into exile in the neutral Netherlands, where he lived until his death in 1941. Efforts to turn Germany into a revolutionary socialist state failed. An uprising in Berlin, led by the Spartacus League, was viciously suppressed in January 1919, resulting in the murder of both Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg. Germany emerged from the war years as the centre-left Weimar Republic. It lasted for 14 years before the rise of Nazism consigned the world to more carnage. But we digress. So now we must return to early November 1918 and the search for an end to four bloody years of bloodshed. On the night of November the 7th, the German delegation, headed by the respected politician Matthias Erzberger, travelled through Allied lines for a face-to-face -face armistice negotiation. Their destination, a train siding in the Forêt de Compiègne in eastern France. Awaiting their arrival was the Supreme Commander of the Allied Armies, Marshal Ferdinand Foch, and other Allied officers. The terms to be offered were brutal and breathtaking, and not in line with the anticipated package of terms the Germans thought they would be offered as part of a just peace, as outlined in the 14 points. The terms offered, there were five in total, was that Germany was to immediately withdraw all its troops from France and Belgium. More controversially, they were also to withdraw from Alsace-Lorraine, which was, of course, not part of France, but German sovereign territory, if only for the last 50 years. German territory on the west bank of the Rhine would be occupied by Allied troops. Allied troops would also hold strategic bridgeheads on the eastern bank. Large quantities of military equipment and surface warships would be handed over to the Allies. And most controversially, the naval blockade of Germany would continue until a full peace treaty had been signed. These terms were both brutal and humiliating. It rendered Germany indefensible should the Allies renew the attack and constituted surrender, not just a secession of hostilities. Foch was not certain Germany could accept these terms and so authorised continued Allied attacks on the Western Front in anticipation that the Germans would continue to fight on. Opinion among the Allied generals was divided. Field Marshal Haig, with a 100-day offensive that brought Germany to the negotiating table, pushed for an immediate end to the fighting, but he was overruled by Foch. 
US General John Blackjack Pershing prayed that the Germans would reject the armistice. But this would allow time for the US troops to play a bigger role and to thoroughly defeat the Germans on the field of battle. Prophetically, he said, what I dread is that Germany will not know that he has licked. But Foch's fears that the Germans would renew hostilities were removed when revolution broke out in Germany. The German Republic was, was proclaimed on November the 9th, and on the 10th, the new government authorised Erzberger to accept in full the Allied terms. So at 2am on the 11th, the German delegation stepped down from their train and walked on planks across the muddy ground of Foch's railway carriage. For the next three hours, various points were discussed and clarified, and just after 10 past five, the armistice was signed by Foch, the British First Sea Lord, Rosalind Weens, and for Germany by Erzberger and three of his colleagues. It agreed that hostilities would cease at 11 a.m., in part to assure the message reached all outlying positions, but also for the dramatic effect of ending the war at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. It was a dramatic effect that resulted in approximately a further 11,000 casualties, including 3,000 deaths. The war continued until the last moment. Allied troops were ordered to secure key strategic points ahead of the ceasefire while German troops, for the same reason, were charged with holding those positions. All would be vital at the forthcoming peace conference. The Americans were the most aggressive. Three years late the party, they wanted to make up for lost time. As the watches on the officers' wrists changed to 11 o'clock, the order was given to cease fire. An eerie silence descended all along the front. As the guns fell silent, reactions were mixed. On the front line in the advanced trenches, there was no sudden fraternization between the opposing sides, such as had been witnessed at the Christmas truce of 1914. Instead, the Allied soldiers maintained a watchful vigilance and held their position in anticipation of any violation of the armistice by their foes opposite. Meanwhile, those troops out of the line in the rear positions swung wildly from either quiet contemplation to riotous celebration with the local population. Far away from the battlefields, the scenes in London, New York and Paris were ecstatic with massed crowds. Elsewhere, the singing and dancing degenerated into mass disorder, especially in Chicago and Melbourne. But more often than not, there were well-behaved street parties as families awaited the return of loved ones, even as notifications of deaths continued to drop on unsuspecting doormats. There was no rejoicing in Germany. Shock and bitterness were widespread. They had thought, and had been led to believe by the authorities, that Germany would win the war, that their army could not be beaten. In a hospital, one German soldier, while recovering from injuries sustained during a gas attack, described his anguish at the realisation that all the hard years of fighting had all been in vain. The soldier's name was Adolf Hitler, and his reaction to the experience of defeat was widespread and a common narrative began to spread that the German army had not been defeated, but had been stabbed in the back by a combination of politicians, socialists and Jews. The war was over, a fragile peace was in place. Eyes would now turn from the battlefield to the negotiating table. If anyone thought that, that would be an easy path, they would soon be disabused of that notion. 
But that is for my next talk. For now, we need to review the state of the world of late 1918 and early 1919. Peace broke out, but things were far different from the carefree world of 1914. After four years of modern warfare, the world was left devastated. As we have seen, a series of armistices had ended the war across various fronts, even if it took several weeks for the news to filter to the furthest long battlefields in places such as Africa. These armistices also ended those empires that had found themselves on the losing side. The German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire were consigned to history. But as old empires collapsed, new states appeared. States such as Poland, Czechoslovakia and the Kingdom of Serbia, Croats and the Slovenes that eventually morphed into Yugoslavia. Meanwhile, in the former Russian Empire, a civil war was raging that would cast a shadow over any peace talks. After the fighting stopped, the world faced a daunting transition to peace. Malnutrition and disease killed millions, while political disorder and continued armed conflict blocked recovery in many places. Soldiers returning home were often disorientated by the experience of war, and a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder was nearly a century away. In total, World War I cost the lives of approximately 10 million military personnel. Overall, the losses were heavily concentrated in younger males, the so-called lost generation. In fact, our military losses as a percentage of the population are about half of that of France and Germany, 2% versus 4%. However, the lost generation title is not just in the number of deaths, but also in the various degrees of disability, both physical and mental. In addition, the loss of an only son or daughter, the loss of a future prime minister, scientist or engineer, all had an impact on the world. When you add in approximately 20 million soldiers wounded across the world, you begin to see the full horror of the war. And these are just the military casualties. While civilian deaths on the home front were relatively low, approximately 2,000, but with a further 14,000 merchant seamen. Across the world, the numbers are numbing. Approximately 3 million died due to military action, while a further 7 million died of malnutrition and disease as a direct result of the conflict. In Serbia, the losses are truly staggering. 50% of all adult males died during the four years of war, both military and civilian. 20 million killed by the hand of man. But nature now decided to show how pitiful man really is by unleashing the worst pandemic in centuries. It is, of course, a misnomer to call it the Spanish flu, as its origins are almost certainly not in Spain. The Spanish flu is, of course, particularly relevant these days, but there is not time today to give it more than a passing glance. The Spanish flu pandemic of 1918-1919, it infected an estimated 500 million people worldwide about a third of the planet's population, and killed an estimated 20 to 50 million people, with approximately 250,000 killed in the UK, including my own great aunt and uncle, and I assume many relatives of those listening today. The flu was first observed in Europe, the United States and parts of Asia, before swiftly spreading around the world. At the time, there were no effective drugs or vaccines to treat this killer flu strain. Citizens were ordered to wear masks. Schools, theatres and businesses were closed. 
and bodies piled up in makeshift morgues before the virus ended its deadly global march. A chilling reminder. Plus ça change, c'est plus la même chose. The war may have been over, the demobilization of the Allied soldiery proceeded with a glacial slowness. Not surprisingly, this led to public protests as families eagerly awaited the return of loved ones. More dangerously, it also led to serious cases of unrest within the military. And at Kinmel Camp in North Wales in March 1919, two days of riots involving Canadian troops resulted in five dead and 25 charged with mutiny resulting in some mutineers receiving a 10-year sentence. The slowness of the demobilization wasn't just a case of bureaucratic inefficiency, but the real worry the army commanders faced was that until the full implementation of the armistice and the final peace treaty had been signed, they had to keep their army in the field in a state of readiness, lest the German army began to march west once again. German soldiers, though, were more interested in marching east towards home. But when they returned, they found the country in the grip of revolutionary turmoil. Seeking an explanation for a defeat they had not expected, or in some cases even felt they had suffered, many ex-soldiers were drawn into extreme nationalist groups that blamed socialist and Jews for the debacle. These disillusioned veterans were soon being recruited by paramilitary organization called Free Corps, where they were soon putting their military experience into use. Sanctioned by the German government, these free corps were used to crush communist uprisings in Berlin in January and murder Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg. It would not be long before the nascent Nazi party took its first faltering steps towards establishing the Third Reich. In part, the unrest in Germany and other countries was caused by the awfulness of day-to-day -day life. Despite the war being over, life remained a miserable struggle for most Germans who faced poverty, cold and hunger, induced by political chaos and the effects of the Allied naval blockade. This blockade had effectively choked the supply lines into Germany during the war, but controversially remained in force until a final peace treaty could be signed. This was in part due to the refusal of Germany to give up its own merchant fleet. The German Board of Public Health estimated that over 700,000 deaths from starvation and disease were caused by the blockade between 1914 and 1918 with a further 100,000 in 1919. While these numbers are subject to interpretation, a conservative estimate of nearly a half a million dead is now widely supported. But Germany was far from alone in suffering and trying to overcome the horrific consequences of war. In Turkey's cities, typhus was rampant, food scarce, fuel unobtainable, and transport at a standstill. It was the same across East and Central Europe. Russia was the worst affected, with an estimated 5 million civilian deaths across 1918 to 1922 as a result of war, revolution, famine and disease, an increase of 4 million versus the normal mortality rate. But even for the victors, there were many problems. Riots broke out in Italy, anarchists were hunted in the US, and the UK faced unrest in Ireland, Egypt and India. Belgium and France faced the most daunting challenge, and the cost of reconstruction the war-devastated zone of the Western Front, with its ruined and obliterated towns and villages, wrecked factories and mines, gas-poisoned soil, and dangerous litter of unexploded munitions. The cost of reconstruction was put at 80 billion francs. 
1924. Zone Rouge are areas throughout northeastern France that the French government isolated after the First World War. The land, which originally covered more than 460 square miles, was deemed too physically and environmentally damaged by conflict for human habitation. The Zone Rouge was defined just after the war as completely devastated. Damage to properties, 100%. Damage to agriculture, 100%. Impossible to clean. Human life, impossible. In total, it is calculated that there were approximately 500 million shells that failed to detonate on impact. This iron harvest of unexploded shells and mines is still being collected today by farmers across northeast France and Belgium. The sum alone generates close on 25 tonnes a year, and it is forecasted to take 500 more years before it will be cleared. Clearing World War I battlefields has cost hundreds of lives, and the Belgian bomb squad alone has lost 23 lives since it was formed in 1946. So through death and destruction, the world of 1919 was far different to the world of 1914. The time for a full peace treaty was now at hand. Next time, I will take you through the peace negotiations. Thank you. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.